This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show. Today on the James Altucher Show. So if you just listened to part one, you know this is General Stanley McChrystal. He wrote a book called Risk, A User's Guide. He talks all about his experiences in Afghanistan and Iraq. And But now in this part of the episode, part two, we're going to talk specifically about what is going on in Afghanistan, Iraq, China, and what are the risks the U.S. faces going forward. So what risks do you think we did not take into account in Afghanistan where a, you know, 20 years later, we were still there, you know, 19 years later, we were still there. And now, you know, there's this additional risk where we always, you know, three presidents in a row, we were always saying we would pull out quickly. Now we pulled out quickly and somehow we took, we took a risk. We took a huge risk that somehow didn't really work out. What, what happened? What's happening? If you go back and you look at our interaction with uh, Afghanistan, we'll call it from 1989, when the Soviets were leaving, we had supported the Mujahideen and the Mujahideen were gonna finish off the remnants of the Afghan government that the Soviets supported. We turned away. We said, okay, our, our business here is done and we turned away. And we say, okay, well, we did our, our thing to defeat the Russians. We incurred risk then because by walking away, we lost leverage with what was happening in Afghanistan. Now, you could argue we didn't want leverage or we didn't get leverage. And so the Afghan state went into civil war and then the Taliban came in until 2001. We had this chaotic civil war going on and 90% of the country run by a pretty austere fundamental group of guys. So we get a risk in the region, and that risk manifests itself by them letting al-Qaeda in. Then we're posed with a whole new challenge. You've got al-Qaeda inside Afghanistan from which the 9-11 attacks are planned. The risk is if you leave them, if you leave al-Qaeda, they are in a place and you got a problem. If you go in after al-Qaeda and you topple the Taliban government, you have a new dynamic. You have a chaotic state again, an ungoverned state. And so is the risk, do you walk away? Do you, do you hit al-Qaeda and then leave this destroyed Afghanistan with no government and walk away? And the risk then is a chaotic environment that could affect not just the region, but the world. So you can walk these risks almost through every few years. And presidents would each hit a period of decision points where they've got three basic options. And I'm oversimplifying. They can send more troops. They can pull out or they can do something in the middle, which I'll call muddle along. That's a pejorative term, but, but do something in the middle. And both are risky. Sending more is political risky. Pulling out is risky with terrorism and politically. And so they sort of rationally decide to do something in the middle. And we then find ourselves 20 years there. And we criticize each of the presidents for, for not doing it, but they were being pretty rational about risks. And they were, I don't think they were lying to the American people. I think they were trying to make the best of the choices they felt they'd been given. Now we're in this position where the decision is made to pull out. There were risks in staying. There are now risks in having departed. 
And there are risks in the way in which we departed and that the perception is that, you know, there was a chaotic departure. I think this is a pretty limited duration risk. But now the new risk is, will the Taliban regime let extremist terrorist groups use it for a hotbed to diminish the world? And it's a real risk. How big is it? It depends who's calculating it. And uh, so it's hard to say that it's, uh, that it's worse than the other risks if you've done something else. Sort of the key thing here is you very rarely open a door and walk into a room without risks. You walk out of one risk, you walk into new risks. Just like that, the risk. That, that's almost yeah. the exercise one needs to do is that for every decision, yeah. if you make a decision, you're assuming positive outcomes will result. But I think it's a good practice, a good exercise to essentially list again, using your methodology, you know, discover and list all the potential risks that are out there, whether you're an individual or an organization, or you're making decisions for an organization. I think that's probably a valuable exercise to realize there's always trade-offs. There's never not the case that there's trade-offs. That's right. And, and another point is, I think there are two components of a decision. There's the values part. Do you adhere to your basic values? And I would argue you should. And then the other part is the probability of the outcome. So if you base your risk on your values and you take a as high a probability outcome as you can, then you got to remember that the outcome doesn't mean you made a good decision. You can make a terrible decision, get a great outcome. Of course, then we say we made a great decision. We can make a terrible decision, get a terrible outcome, or we can make a great decision, get a terrible outcome. I mean, fate is part of this. And the key thing is admitting that there is always a part of just probability of outcome. And so if we make a good decision based on good values and we get a bad outcome, we shouldn't beat ourselves up. We should admit that we're in that kind of world and we should just adjust from there. Right. So, so given what's happened now, whether, whether we took into account the risks or not, what do you think is going to happen next? Not just in Afghanistan, but obviously the risk of China, not only from an economic perspective, but even from a military one now is, is rising. The Middle East is, is more uncertain, it seems, yeah. than ever. What, what do you think is going to happen now and, and the risks we need to worry about? Yeah, I think first there are two parts of it. The world thinks that the United States is troubled. Uh, they think that we have difficulty doing things. We have political, internal lack of stability, and that manifests itself in we are not consistent, reliable partners. And that's unfortunate because we pay for that. It's like having a bad credit rating. You pay higher interest rates. And we're going to pay higher interest rates for a while because those nations and, and uh, peoples that had such trust in us used to give us everything at a discount because of that. Now that will not happen. We will pay a much higher rate for what we do in the world. The good news is in that part is that the other competitors in the world got a lot of problems too. The Chinese are the Chinese. And when they treat people around the world the way they do, they don't help their cause. And so, and the Russians are the Russians. So if, if they don't get better at the way they interact in the world, our discount, I mean, our, our uh, premium that we're paying won't be lethal. It'll just be painful. 
The thing that's potentially lethal to us is internal. Um, you know, somebody to me the other day said, wow, you know, you watch on TV and you see these bearded guys seize the capital, you know, of Afghanistan. How could that happen? I said, what do you mean? That happened to us in January. So if you think about it, now, clearly we're not Afghanistan and I'm not saying that we are, but I'm saying that we have a level of dysfunction in our national conversation, in our media, in our governance, in how we interact with each other, how we make decisions that is very, very dangerous. And I would use COVID-19 as an example. COVID-19 was a predictable threat. It was not only predictable, because we knew a pandemic would come. We'd done an exercise on it the year before. We don't know exactly what novel coronavirus would come, but you know a, with, regular, with regularity, a pandemic will threaten you. Not only do we know that it's coming, we know what to do about it. We know there's a scientific part to vaccines. We know the public health uh, knowledge is pretty good. So we knew it's coming. We knew what to do and we didn't do it. And so all of the things I talked about, about preparing an entity and then executing when you need to, I would urge us to look in the mirror and say, we didn't do nearly as well against a lethal pandemic that everybody could hate. I mean, there's nobody's gonna be a fan of a pandemic. And yet we had a difficult time unifying and executing against that. That should be a frightening indicator to us. Would you say there's a parallel between that and our setup before 9-11 where we didn't really understand the size of the threat that could happen on our soil, just like we didn't really understand we didn't, because we never really got hit by a major pandemic since 1918, we didn't really understand the threat, so we weren't ready. Do you think now we'll be ready going forward? Well, I hope so. I think that 9-11 was more forgivable because although it was in parts of the government, it was more specialized at intelligence and military and law enforcement. It wasn't the broad U.S. population as much dropping the ball in that case. I think we've improved a lot after 9-11. But terrorism will morph just like pandemics, like viral threats will mutate. And so it will always be different. It's much more cyber now it's, and whatnot. So the question is, are we capable of doing the kind of constant adaptation required to the moving new emerging threats? And that means you're constantly doing those basics to make yourself better at being able to respond. So... Tell me about the Martin Luther King letter to white clergymen. Why did you include that in your book? What was what was the risk he was battling? Because there, it seems like there's these more intangible or esoteric risks of how you brand yourself or how you communicate, how, how you express to the world who you are. And, and it seems like Martin Luther King was dealing with, with that risk somehow. Yeah, Dr. King was, of course, trying to move this very polyglot movement, the civil rights movement, bunch of different big personalities, different organizations in a pretty focused campaign, a strategic campaign to change American society. And American society, if we oversimplified, had two parts to it. One part of which was adamantly opposed to him because they thought they were going to lose equities. Much of that was in the South. It was people who said, if African-Americans make progress, it comes at my expense. Therefore, I'm, I'm adamantly against it. Then there was the rest of America that didn't 
perceive it was going to be losing a lot, but felt that there was no rationale for the, the kind of, of upset that an aggressive campaign for rights did. So it was more people that said, let's take our time, let's let evolution occur, people will get more rights over time and, and the problem will solve itself. And Dr. King, I think, rightly took on some members of the white clergy when they wrote an op-ed that basically said, we agree with what you're trying to do, but you're just a little too aggressive, too hot-headed. You know, we gotta do this in a more mature fashion. And his response is, you can't let this continue. The probability of more in injustice, the probability of more intolerance is almost 100%. You have got to take it on now. There is absolutely zero advantage and zero uh, rationale, you know, valid argument for saying, no, we have to wait, we need to move more slowly. And so what he was taking on was a couple of things in that group. He was taking on a bias they had for uh, the status quo. He was taking on inertia, the idea that where things were or, sometime, or where things are is hard to get moving. Um, he was trying to unify a narrative so that people understood that you have got to live the narrative of your society. If we are the land of the free, and we are still divided by Jim Crow and other uh, limiting factors on part of it, then our narrative is wrong. We, are, we belie the things we claim about ourselves with our behaviors. So he viewed his biggest risk, not necessarily um, the hardcore, even racist South, but the people who actually agreed with him, but didn't want to take action. That's exactly right. And you could start in the White House. He had to convince President Eisenhower, President Kennedy, President Johnson to do more than they really wanted to do. He was pushing them because they had, of course, lever power. But that was true across so much of America. And I think in many ways, that kind of thing is still true today. And and the story I, I love, I've even written about this myself, is the, the Fosbury flop. Uh, what... what Tell that story. What was the risk Dick Fosbury was contending with? Yeah, it, it's 1968 for those people who don't remember it. You got a 20-year-old University of Oregon engineering guy who's been high jumping for years. And he's a good high jumper, but he uses the conventional techniques, which was throw yourself over the bar, usually face first, try to roll over any number of things. And he couldn't win that way. And so he had to find a better way to jump. So he comes up with a way where you jump over backwards. You basically run at the thing, and then at the last minute, you turn yourself, and you throw yourself head first over on your back, and you roll over the bar, which allows you to keep your center of gravity mathematically below the bar as you, as you go over it in parts of your body. Now, the thing about it is he could not have done it 10 years earlier because high jump equipment then was little bit of sawdust or sand in the pit, and you'd have broken your neck or your back. But they changed it and they put big foam pads. Suddenly you could land on the back of your neck and you're gonna be fine. And so he goes into the 1968 Mexico Olympics and he throws himself over backwards. And a, one of the reporters described it and said, people were laughing so hard at what they saw, they didn't realize he just won. 
And he changed high jumping to this day. Almost all high jumpers use that technique. He was willing to change because conditions allowed it, but he had something inside himself that was willingness to depart from the status quo because he wanted to get to a different outcome. I can't think of another sport that changed so radically so quickly as that one event. Yeah. You know, it's uh, they've, they've done equipment changes on swimming with, with the way they do the sides of the pool to, to change it. But, but that was a single person's act. You know, maybe you could go to the forward pass in football years and years ago, but I'm less familiar with the, the specifics of that particular day. Well, General Stanley McChrystal, you've done so many things ranging from being in command of large parts of our armed forces and being on boards of companies like Deutsche Bank. And, and you've definitely seen lots of risks taken and you've studied them and you've understood them and you've taken risks in the matters of life and death. The book now, Risk, A User's Guide. I think this is just as important on an individual level as an organizational level. Like, again, as you said earlier, when you open a door, there's risks. If you decide to buy a home and it's a, such a positive thing, you're buying a home, you're moving, you're taking care of your family, there's risks. If you go to a college and not work or whatever, there's risks. If you don't get a vaccine there, or do get a vaccine, there's risks. And it's important to understand kind of the DNA of risk-taking. And I feel that's what your your book does so well through through your experiences and through the stories. It was It's a great book to read. Uh, I highly recommend it. I hope you uh, come back on the podcast. I learned so much and, and I'm really grateful you, you, you took the time to come on here. James, you're kind to have me. Thank you. Thanks.